welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 240. Prepare for the breach, because the breach is going to happen at some point. We live in this age of disaster. If that's going on in, you know, a gas pipeline, what about, you know, the rest of our, you know, utilities and infrastructure? And we're so vulnerable, um, you know, on on sort of both sides of of an attack. The Biden administration entered office with a lot on its plate. In addition to a raging pandemic, Washington, D.C. was still sweeping up the broken glass from the worst attack on the nation's capital since the British sacked Washington in the War of 1812. On the cyber front, Biden's January inauguration came just weeks after the disclosure of one of the most serious and significant cyber attacks on the U.S. government ever, the hack of IT management vendor SolarWinds by a group believed to be affiliated with the Russian FSB. The administration set lofty goals for improving the nation's cyber defense, including issuing a cyber executive order and appointing key new leaders for government agencies, including CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, as well as filling a new position, the National Cyber Director. How is the administration doing and how have the events of the last two years, including the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, changed the calculus for the nation's cyber defense? To answer those questions, we invited Lauren Zabrek back into the studio. Lauren is the executive director of the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. In this conversation, Lauren and I talk about the successes so far in the administration's cyber planning and where there's more work to do. We also dig into how incidents like the Colonial Pipeline attack have amplified calls for federal, state, and local governments to shift right in their thinking and strategies, focusing not just on detecting attacks, but on the potential impacts of successful cyber attacks on critical infrastructure and the economy. To start off, I asked Lauren to tell us about herself and the work she does for the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center. Okay, welcome back to the Security Ledger podcast. And uh, with us in the studio, we have Lauren Zabrak back for a conversation. It's been uh, a while, Lauren. I think it was February of 2021 uh, when we last spoke just after the inauguration. I know. It, it seems much longer, but also really short too, right? Time, yeah. time just seems to not matter anymore. So I reached out to you again, Lauren, because you posted a link, I think, to LinkedIn on an article that you had co-authored um, that I thought was really, really interesting and and I think encapsulates a lot of the kind of what, what's going on right now in the cybersecurity and national defense space. Um, and I wanted to get you in to talk about it. But for our listeners who maybe didn't check out our last interview, and I will definitely link to that in the blog post so people can hear that as well. Tell our audience a little bit about the, yourself and the work that you do there at the Belfer Center at Harvard University. Sure. Thank you, Paul. And, and I really appreciate you having me on again. So uh, as you mentioned, my name is Lauren Zabrick, and I run the Cyber Project at the Harvard Kennedy School, which is essentially a policy-relevant research program within the Belfer Center, and that's um, a university, Harvard University-affiliated think tank. Um my driving vision since coming into this role has been cybersecurity is national security. And so using that, you know, just that's been what's 
been driving the research that we've done, whether that's on international issues, um, collaboration and norms and things like that to the domestic side of, of the house. So also collaboration and workforce and diversity and things like that. It's all related. Um, so yeah, I've been there for, been here for about three years and, and, you know, been, been able to do some really interesting stuff. Very grateful. And can you just talk a little bit about your own background and your path to the exciting world of cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people um, have come to cybersecurity from different areas, you know, and, and so I think highlighting those stories is important Big for time. those people yeah. who, you know, are interested and, and, you know, are like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Yes, you can. Um, so I started my career in the military. I was in the Air Force. I was an intelligence officer. Um, got out after a couple of years, about five years, and um, did a, a brief stint in consulting. And then I actually went back into the government as an intelligence analyst, as a civilian. And I was doing counterterrorism work. Then in 2015, 2016, uh, we moved up to the Boston area, so had to leave government. And I was lucky enough to join the startup uh, Recorded Future when it was very, very early on. And I started out as a solutions engineer. I was demoing software. And that's when I was just really learning about you know, everything cyber. And while that was very new for me and something I you know, had never done before, um, it actually was one of the best things that could have happened because it gave me this really incredible view of the landscape, right? Like the small, medium businesses, state and local governments who were really dealing with these issues head on. And, you know, at a time where some major breaches and attacks had happened, but some hadn't happened yet. And just to sort of watch these organizations deal with that and say, you know, what kind of investment should I be making? you know, in cybersecurity, what should we be doing? Um, it, you know, it really led me to want to get into cyber policy because, you know, I was like, you know, I feel like we can do this better as a country. And that's been sort of what has driven me um, since then. And um, I was lucky enough to get into the Harvard Kennedy School as a student, did my uh, master's there, and then um, uh, came to this project right out of school. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been really amazing, and and we've done some really awesome work. Um, you know, the the fellows, the students, the the staff here. It's you know, it's really been wonderful and and awesome to to work with everyone. So when we last spoke, Lauren, it was again just after the inauguration. Um, you know, democracy did not fall, and um, we Thank were God. talking about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's a lot going on, yes. uh, but we were talking about. Um, you know, the incoming Biden, well, the, the new Biden administration and, uh, you know, the work they had to do to pick up the pieces from the outgoing Trump administration. So I want you to sort of, if you could, kind of catch us up um, and give us a report card for these first almost two years of the Biden administration. You know, how have they done both with the appointments and piecing together a national cyber strategy, again, following the sort of 
low-key chaos of the Trump years. Yeah, you know, I think they've they've done a, a really good job at identifying some really great leaders and identifying some of the places that, you know, they want to increase investment, whether that's, you know, money or attention, things like that, and and putting together the strategy and, and, you know, trying to get the country, you know, forward on these issues. One of the things behind that has really been the um, Cyber Solarium Commission report. So many great recommendations came out of that, and and many of them were actually codified into law, which I, I think is is truly incredible. And so you mentioned the National Cyber Director role that came out of the the Cyber Solarium Commission recommendations. Um, and so obviously, when you're creating a new office, you know that's that's going to take some time. And they were just given money, I think, last winter, right? So it hasn't even been a year, um, you know, since they've had that money. And so during that time, they've been putting together a strategy, they've been putting people in place, you know, really trying to get it off the ground. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to be doing, you know, once they're at FMC, full motion capability there. And then of course, yes, with CISA, you know, coming out of that time with the you know great leadership by Chris Krebs and then and then to get Jen Easterly in who has just been an another absolute, big appointment oh yep. my gosh yeah a total rock star just you know driving so much buzz around the agency and getting so many people excited and 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 not only that but just you know doing a lot of really great things on the ground to you know, to help improve relationships and, you know, and initiatives and, and, and things like that. And especially during this time, right, of heightened um, threats out of the, the Russian war in Ukraine. So I think that's been great. You know, it's really helping us to move along. And, and something I've been thinking about lately is, you know, at the federal level, I, I do feel like we are, you know, heading in the, the right direction. Definitely a lot of work to do. That's, there's no question there. But very hopeful. And then, you know, on the other side too, in the, in Congress, where the Cyber Solarium Commission uh, report and the whole commission actually like was born from, that was a bipartisan effort. And I really do think that, you know, this whole time Congress has understood the, um, uh, the seriousness or at least, you know, many people in Congress have understood the seriousness of, of cyber attacks um, and cyber threats. And it's heartening to see, again, a lot of work still to be done. And I've, I've sort of, you know, said, hey, Congress, we need to, to codify regulations into law, right? We, we haven't been able to do that. So that's, you know, one thing that I, I would really still like to see. So, I mean, you mentioned there, there has been a lot of um, funding uh, coming to localities. I think there was a, some legislation passed actually just focused on like K through 12 cyber threats, right? And then there was money for um, localities to address cyber risk um, in some of the, um, you know, COVID bailout uh, bills that passed. One of the problems with that is that there is not a lot of coordination um, for how those that money gets spent and ensuring that it is spent in ways and on things that are productive and that complement each other, right? Could you talk about that? I mean, just just the lack of big vision and plan that that encompasses both, you know, the national, federal level, state governments all the way down to local communities. 
Yeah. And, and Paul, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, as I said, I think, you know, at, at the federal level, we're, we're heading in a, a pretty good direction. I think where we need to focus now is the state and local level. And I've been sort of exploring, you know, at least what's going on in, in New England, right? I've been talking with various people. And so, for instance, in Massachusetts, you know, we have Mass Cyber run by Stephanie Helm. It's a great organization, yeah. quasi-governmental, um, really focused on the ecosystem. I know in the state legislature, they have formed a joint cybersecurity committee. They've held a couple of hearings. Um, but overall, like, you know, who's sort of generating, you know, policy, like you said, the, the, the strategic vision for cybersecurity in Massachusetts and, you know, across New England. This is something I'm thinking a lot about, like, you know, because every state is different. Every state kind of does things differently. You know, interestingly, I've been having a lot of conversations with this organization in in Florida called Cyber Florida, and they were created out of statute by the state legislature. State organization. Yeah, exactly. Uh And they sit at the, I think it's the University of Southern Florida, and they provide awareness, they provide training, and they're also doing public policy on these cyber issues. Like their goal is to become, you know, Florida is a very strong cyber, uh, you know, entity, right? So they're mm-hmm. doing a lot. I'm like, this could potentially be replicated, I think. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and lots of universities up here in New England. Um, so, yeah, you know, I guess I'm just throwing that out to the universe at this point. It's, you know, I think it's something that, you know, we could, we could model, we could, you know, really lead on, um, in this region. And, um, I think it would be really impactful, uh, for, for our states here. And especially, you know, you know, where certain utilities and other infrastructure are regional, not just, Mm -hmm. you know, within Mm -hmm. one state. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I just think there's so much opportunity here. So you wrote like the fundamental challenge is that the structures and incentives are lacking for for cooperation, basically, and the relationships that exist are ad hoc and point to point. You know, there's no clear operational picture of the entire threat landscape or a national strategic approach to address these threats. Where does the leadership to basically forge those relationships, kind of kind of sit people down at a table together and be like, you need to talk and you need to continue talking. Is, is that on the Biden administration or or not? Uh, I think I think part of it is. Um, and, and so we we had written about this. We wrote a paper um, in my first couple of years in this role, and it was published um, last summer, I believe. And that was really exploring how we can get to better operational collaboration, um, as you mentioned. And we we did a, an op-ed, um, just re- or more of like an article, I guess, just recently that was published in the War, War yeah, on the Rocks. We'll include a link to that article as well. It's a great article. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that was based on the paper, but with some updated thinking. And, um, you know, but really taking that idea of putting the structures in place. And so I've argued, yes, we have FBI field offices with, you know, cyber, um, you know, agents, capabilities and and analysts and things like that. But we really need, um, in my opinion, uh, these places for people to come together and to build this unity of effort and to build the trust. Trust, I think, is one of the number one things that we need and making those relationships and, and, you know, creating plans and exercising them because, 
you know, that old saying goes, you don't want to be handing out business cards, you know, during an event. You want to know who to call. You want to know what you're supposed to do. And so I think what better place to do this is is within the regional offices that CISA already has. Um, you know, they're embedded in, in, I think, 10 different regions. And, you know, they have different representatives from CISA and, and leaders and things like that. But if we can get people from the community, from state and local governments, from FBI, from FEMA, from private sector companies, like the you know, major companies, the utilities, things like that, you know, essentially bringing people to, to the table and giving them a voice and and creating those relationships, having people sitting side by side doing this analysis and sharing information. I take that from my experience as an intelligence analyst, especially, you know, going downrange, uh, deploying, you know, during wartime and, and having that experience coming from different, you know, branches of the military, different agencies, even different countries and, you know, just being able to share and, and make relationships and, and, you know, produce very good analysis and also to be able to essentially push that up and have, you know, a broader national uh, level awareness of what's going on across um, across the landscape. OK, so two big two major hacks, you know, in the last in the let's just say in the first part of the Biden administration that that warrant mentioned. Um, and I think. They're very different from each other and probably necessitate different responses, but I'm interested in your take on it. The first, obviously, is, is solar storm, solar winds, which predated President Biden taking office. Um, huge supply chain compromise of solar winds, so, yeah. uh, Orion product, huge impact in both the government space and the private sector. Um, the other was the Colonial Pipeline hack, huge impact in terms of, um, you know, civil society, so you saw runs on gas stations in the South, but a more kind of typical ransomware attack on a on a corporate network, not an ICS network, but it had an impact on ICS, on an industrial control system infrastructure. What's been the response to those? Have we, and have we gotten the response right? You know, again, two really different threat scenarios, and, and, and I'm interested in your thoughts on whether we have um, learned from those and, and and seen some good policy or response out of uh, out of them. I think we learned sort of the the you know the impacts of the different kinds of threats and what can happen. Um, so you mentioned solar winds, and and that was a, a supply chain uh, compromise and and more of an espionage operation at at this you know I think at this point in our understanding of. Uh, the event, then, yeah, it was it was an espionage. But that's not to say that there was no damage and and no um, you know issue from that. You know, the fact that it could happen and that it had you know these actors were able to breach you know very sensitive networks is is a huge problem. And you know, obviously, goes to demonstrate the capabilities of um, of those particular groups. Um, and, you know, in that showing there's that cyber offers stealth and reach and we just don't really know, right? We don't have that full picture of what's going on. I'm sure there's some sort of operation going on right now that we're unaware of, um, right? And, you know, to prove that. It's safe to assume. Right. And, you know, I'm sure you, you're tracking on this, but the those two new um, industrial control systems 
malware families that were discovered earlier in the year. Thank God they were discovered before they could have any sort of impact. Um, and I credit the analysts, um, both you know in government and, and in the private sector, for um, being able to identify and, and attribute and, and warn you know the the public um, you know very quickly. But you know that that just goes to show that the capability and the intent is there, right? So, and then of course you know you mentioned the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, yes, your <laughs> you know run of the mill ransomware. Yes, but in a completely different context where it was on our critical infrastructure. And I know we throw around that term a lot, critical infrastructure. You know, for the public listening, think our public services, our public safety are essential services. So this impacted a gas pipeline. And yes, while it did not impact the actual industrial controls, it still made the company shut down operation because they just, you know, they they paid the ransom, but which is kind of a key distinction, right? We talk about the vulnerabilities of industrial control systems, um, and yet Colonial kind of showed that that risk really extends to traditional IT networks as Absolutely. well. If, the, if those are backing up uh, industrial control systems networks or the company you know, needed to operate the ICS relies on that IT network, well, then that's kind of critical infrastructure too, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then look what happens. They have to shut down you know, delivery for days. And like you said, you know, created uh, a run on gas. Well, what happens if that's water or, you know, other sort of, you know, energy um, uh, generation and things like that? Those things have real serious impact on our public safety and our well-being. Um, And so for me, (laughs) you know, seeing that and, and seeing, you know, across the landscape that there's just no requirement to secure the systems and not only securing them but also you know as as we were talking about this um on the other side of that quote unquote right of boom as you know uh juliet kayam writes a lot in her book on the devil never sleeps is to prepare for the breach because the breach is going to happen at some point we live in this age of disaster and so you know, one of the things that she writes about in, in her book is the fact that this this attack happens and they don't have a plan to mitigate it. It's, you know, is it just like an on-off switch? Like that's that to me is a huge problem. And if if that's going on in, you know, a gas pipeline, what about, you know, the rest of our, you know, utilities and infrastructure? And I just think we're we're so vulnerable um, you know, on, on sort of both sides of of a, an attack. Right. You talk about the Colonial's decision, you know, first of all, they're negotiating with the ransomware group, which is obviously discouraging in and of itself. But even then, the recovery is is complicated because often these decryption decryption tools are not very robust or well well authored. Um, And so their decision at that point is to shut down the pipeline itself out of caution. Um, And you point out that that again, if the security control is basically an on-off switch, um, that that's a problem. That doesn't give you a lot of um, uh, room for fine-grained response to to threats. Yeah, um, talk about this concept a little bit of right of boom. We talk about left of boom, like you know, you need to do better job of detection. You need to um, you know uh, find evidence of. Uh, compromise or malicious activity early, and therefore, you know, reduce the likelihood of a, of a adverse event. You talk about right of boom, which is something bad is inevitably going to happen. What is your response to it? 
Yeah. So, you know, and I want to give credit where credit is due. So, you know, this, this really came out of reading Juliet Kayyem's book, The Devil Never Sleeps. And yeah. Um, so she came out with this book and, and, you know, I, I work with her, right. She has, uh, she's a lecturer here at the Kennedy school. She's part of the Belfer center. She runs the Homeland security project. And, um, so I picked it up and, and, you know, I don't have a ton of time to do extra reading because I'm a mom of, a, of two young children. Um, but, you know, where I could get it in, you know, I was just like highlighting and underlining and dog-earing the pages. And, and I just, I got so inspired because, yes, I think, you know, a lot, most people, you know, are really thinking about, okay, what can we do to harden our defenses, right? To make sure that we're being secure and doing the right thing. And that's vital. We should be doing that. Absolutely. And continue to put um, resources toward that. But she writes in this book that we are in an age of disasters. Bad things are going to happen. Um, We saw with the pandemic and all these, you know, other things that are, are happening. And, and I think knowing that that can, you know, give people sort of this sense of hopelessness that, you know, no matter what, something bad's going to happen. But she writes, being prepared for that breach, knowing it's coming, but having a plan can actually give us agency. And and just that really stuck with me. And so I, I asked her, I was like, you know, I think we should write a piece that that tries to take what you're saying, right? Like reframe the debate. Or take what you're saying and, and, and you know, use that to try to reframe this debate. Because previously, or, or, you know, for the last decade or so, when you talk about cyber regulations, you know, mandatory cybersecurity standards, you know, the response is, well, it's overburdensome on industry and, and things like that. They don't have the people and the, the, the funds and, and it's going to hamper innovation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's the wrong response. We need to reframe that debate from a pro-business versus pro-big government sort of narrative, right? Yes, that's that's right. what we've been saying, to one of, the, you know, security and preparedness in the event of a breach. So, like, let's shift that narrative one. And then as we're doing that, what, as you're asking, what does that mean, you know, to, to go right of boom? It's like I said, having this plan in place that you've exercised, right? You're not just like cracking open the <laughs> the playbook and saying, okay, we, we've experienced this breach and, you know, we can no longer run operations because of, you know, a, a certain event. What do we do in order to get it back online, to protect the public, to potentially um, redirect services as needed? Um, how long is this going to take? Uh, to get our our systems back online, and you know, are we going to what what's sort of the conversation on on dealing with the ransom? Who do you go to? Calling the FBI, calling CISA. How do you report? There's a whole host of things that you need to be able to you know have a plan and, and have been thinking about before it actually happens. And we actually wrote about this a little bit too in um, our our piece in Harvard Business Review with. Paul Kobe, who, you know, I know we um, all talked together last time. You know, this is um, this concept. People have been kind of talking about this recently called the continuity of economy. So, you know, what happens when something, you know, impacts 
our, our public safety and, and essential services. And, you know, like Mark Montgomery, Samantha Ravich, they've been really talking about this at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. So they've done a, a, a lot of really good work on this. Um, it's, uh, I think it was in the 2021 NDA, the president has to have a plan on this within two years. And, you know, and working with the different states. So different states have different levels of preparedness there. Some are thinking a lot about it, some aren't. And so I think we all need to raise that, you know, collective level, work together, have these plans. And, and because at the end of the day, it really goes to, and Samantha Ravich writes about this a lot too, is like, it goes to our concept of deterrence. Right. If an adversary or a criminal thinks, well, no, nothing's going to happen if I do this, then they're going to do it. Right. If they have the intent and the capability to do so. But if they know that the response is there, the, the security is there, that we're prepared and then we're, we're prepared to not only act to um, uh, protect ourselves, but also, you know, to take swift action and impose costs, that is a deterrent. Um, and so, you know, to, to wrap, you know, that part up into a neat bow, um, you know, that's something that we have to be thinking about because like I said, as you know, Julia Kayyem says, like the devil never sleeps. It's gonna, you know, we have to be. Darn Zabrak, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us again on Security Ledger Podcast. It's been really great having you back on. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. And keep up the good work. Thank you so much. You too. Lauren Zabrak is the executive director for the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School.